Hey everyone, thanks for listening to our latest sermon. We don't take for granted that you take time to listen, and we do our best to bring you valuable content each week. If you find this sermon particularly helpful, we would really appreciate it if you would do us a favor. If you listen on a podcast host, it would be awesome if you would take some time and leave us a rating or review. This helps our sermons be heard by more people. It really does. It is an easy thing to do, and honestly, it could result in somebody's life being changed. Also, if your life is changed as you listen to this sermon, even just a little, we would love to know about it. You can let us know by emailing us at respond at creekside.me. One more thing, Easter is coming up fast, and we would love to have you join us as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. We have a bunch of great things going on surrounding our celebration of Easter, and you can learn about all of them by visiting creeksidebiblechurch.org slash Easter. parable that we will look at today is is really incredible and it's beautiful and it's so important and what's nice about it from a preacher's perspective is that I think it speaks to everybody. Uh, Some verses in the Bible don't. You might show up here and think I have that figured out but this this parable speaks to to everybody. No matter how you've shown up here this morning it's it's important for you. Uh, example for me, uh, I think I should read this parable every week because I know that sometimes my passion for Jesus can not be what I want it to be. It can, it can wane and, and I can show up on a Sunday morning and, and sing songs about God's grace and mean them but not really feel them not really connect with them and I think some of you might have that same experience you you sing grace grace God's grace and and you're kind of just singing and thinking that melody is nice or whatever and and you, you really just lose some of that that passion for Jesus and other people maybe some of you you just think can God really love me can God really offer his grace to me? Maybe again, maybe for the first time. I mean, am I too much of a sinner? Am I too far gone? Have I done too many bad things? Have I rejected God for too long that, that he, he won't let me back into his kingdom? I mean, maybe I'm too bad. and Maybe everybody else can accept this Jesus thing and Jesus will love them, but, but I'm not so sure about me. And this, this parable that Jesus tells this short story illustrates that, uh, that you're not too far gone and God can still love you. And, and maybe, and, and this is a, a trap for a lot of Christians, but maybe some of you have shown up this morning and you, you know somewhere in your heart, when I say this, you'll know somewhere in your heart that, that you've kind of been looking at people that are outside of Christianity and you've been looking down on them like you are inherently better than them and like you deserve to be able to come to Jesus more than they did. And uh, if they were a little bit more like you before becoming Christians, then they would have already become Christians. And you've created this 
us versus them and we are slightly better just because you know we've chosen this and and they are people that God couldn't love you may not say it that way but they out there are people that that God couldn't love because look how bad they are maybe you have a group of people that you think those are not the right kind of people for God to love and those people will never come to a relationship with Jesus and in fact I told a story a couple of weeks ago about a couple of friends, one of which uh, I just, he would have been low on, on the list of people that I ever thought would become Christians, and thankfully he has, and uh, thankfully he's living for Jesus, but just that if you have that kind of list, if that list is in your head, and you're looking at certain types of people and thinking, well, they're far, and other people are close, those are the kinds of people God loves, and these are the kinds of people God doesn't love, then this parable is for you, it's for you. And so if you've come here this morning, I would say thinking there's no way God could ever love you, or if you've come here this morning thinking you deserve God's love more than other people, or you've come here this morning and you've kind of forgotten about God's love, or you don't really get excited about it anymore, it's uh, something you're just not that passionate about, or you haven't felt in a while, Well, I'm glad you're here because I think that the parable we're going to look at is important to your life. Even if you're a person that just hasn't thought much about God, just doesn't care much about God, really hadn't considered whether God could love you or not, I I hope as we look at this story that uh, maybe for the first time you would go, wow, maybe I should explore the love of God because that parable says a lot about the grace and the love and the mercy and the forgiveness of the God that these Christians serve. But first we must set up the parable because it's a parable that people, uh, that a lot of people know, but it's also a parable like the story of the Good Samaritan that we've looked at in this series that really uh, is misunderstood perhaps in its main point, although this parable is better understood than the story of the Good Samaritan, it may be misunderstood in its main point. And I've talked about how parables can usually have one main overall idea. And I think that that's important when looking at this. I've also talked about how parables might have as many sub-points or, uh, or sub-ideas to that main point as it does characters. An author named Craig Blomberg has created that theory and I think it's pretty good. And uh, one thing I haven't told you about parables that is important is that it's, it's believed by many and, and I'm one of those people that that at the heart of every parable is, is a teaching about the kingdom of Jesus. They're not primarily ethical, moral teachings. They are primarily teachings about the kingdom of Jesus, what it means to be part of God's family, what it is like to be under the rule and reign of Jesus, how you enter into a relationship with God, those types of things. And you will see, hopefully in this parable, that Jesus shows us one main idea, and it's a beautiful idea that you're gonna really like. But he also shows us maybe a couple of subpoints underneath that main idea, and he teaches us something really powerful about his kingdom, about what it means to be in a relationship with him, really how beautiful it is to be in a relationship with him.
And the context for this parable is really important because unlike the parable of the soil or sowers that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Jesus doesn't tell us here what the point is. But the nice thing is there's two parables right before it where he does tell us what the point is. And those two parables and this parable that we'll look at today is in response to something that is going on in his ministry. And that something is found in Luke chapter 15, verses one and two. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Pharisees, religious leaders at the time, teachers of the law, guys in charge of telling others about God, what God's like, what God expects from them, what God has said to them in the Old Testament. These guys had a problem with Jesus. We've seen that in this series. If you've read the New Testament, even quickly or or you've glanced here and there, you see this, this constant battle where the Pharisees are trying to tear down Jesus and to hurt his ministry. They start just by trying to discredit him, but when that doesn't work, they begin to look for a way to arrest him and kill him. And here we see another complaint leveled against Jesus by the religious leaders, and it's that he hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. Now, it's almost April 15th, and so uh, if you're like me, you don't like the tax collectors. The IRS is never my friend this time of year. Never, ever my friend. It's the best tax year we've had in a long time, but still, I don't feel good about it at all. And I especially don't feel good when we've spent eight hours working on our taxes. I just want to find somebody to yell at, but if you've ever called the IRS line, then you know you'll never find anybody to yell at. You'll just stay on the line for a really long time. And and so, uh, right now, I, I just totally get it. Like, how could Jesus hang out with anybody in the IRS? That's terrible. But the tax collectors at the time were hated even more because they didn't even work for the people they were ta- taking taxes from. Like I, our, our IRS, the people who collect taxes from us, they work for our government and, and we reap the benefits of that government and we have roads to drive on and parks to go to and things like that because we pay off our taxes. And so in some ways we can make the good connection. There's a military, you know, we feel safe at night when we go to bed because because they, they steal our money, you know, and, and so we can make this connection. But in the first century, when we read tax collector, these are Jewish men who are working not for the Jewish government, not for the Israeli government as we might think, but for the Roman government. And their job is to collect taxes from Jewish people to give to this foreign government that is ruling and reigning over the Jewish people. They have sold out to a government that is oppressing the Jews, and they are Jews. And you can imagine, then, that the Jewish people don't like these tax collectors very much. And even more, these tax collectors probably sold out because of the opportunity that tax collecting presented to them. They could set the own amount that they took from people, their own amount, And so if the government was requiring 10%, the Romans said, hey, you take 10%, they could come in and say, I'll take 25%. And this is, in fact, what they were doing. So not only are they sellouts to a foreign government, they are robbing people, their own people, their own 
their own nation, their own race of money. You can picture it, right? You would probably dislike them too. And so for these Pharisees, when Jesus shows up on the scene and he's, he's having a dinner and there are the tax collectors, you can see why it would bother them. And then sinners, which is just a catch-all, but probably describes some of the people that we see Jesus hanging out with in the Bible, people uh, like prostitutes, people that we still, now if you saw a minister, somebody in a religious leadership position, if you saw them hanging out with a bunch of prostitutes, you'd go, wait a minute, something's wrong here. And the Pharisees are bothered and, and we are quick, if you're a Christian and you read the New Testament, you're quick to judge the Pharisees because you want to be on Jesus' side. But maybe just a little bit, if we were to pause for a second, we could make, we could admit that we too could feel the same in the same situation. We could sense those same feelings and feel those same feelings. Like, how is this guy how is this person who claims to be from God, who claims to be speaking the words of God, who claims to be one with God, how is he hanging out with the enemies of our country and with people who defile, degrade, and disobey the laws of God? How is that possible? And they hate Jesus even more. And so Jesus tells them three parables. I think in part to explain why he's spending time with these people and in part to teach them something even greater, something about the love and the grace of God even to the most disenfranchised, even to the most lost in the world. And the first parable he tells them is, is the story of the lost sheep and it's basically this, a man has a hundred sheep and one of the sheep is lost. And so the man leaves the the 99 sheep to go off into the country to look for the one sheep that is lost. And he finds that sheep. And in Luke 15, 6 and 7, Jesus says this to conclude the parable. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And then Jesus tells this parable of the lost coin and he says that a woman has 10 coins and in the early Jewish society, a lot of people, there wasn't banks around and so they'd actually wear their clothing right on them, sometimes on a neck, or excuse me, their, their money right on them, sometimes on a necklace in order to keep it safe. Probably didn't have modern locks, things like that. Hard to keep people out of your house, so you just kept your money and your valuables on you if you didn't want them stolen. And so this particular woman loses one of these coins. She loses a tenth of her life savings. It's a big deal. She sweeps the house. She finds the lost coin. And then we read in Luke 15, 9 and 10. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels, in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, notice the repetition here. There is rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents. This, in fact, is the point of the 
parable that we are about to look at. It's the point of the parable that we call the prodigal son or the lost son. Jesus is looking at the religious leaders and he's saying to them, you don't understand. You don't like me even because I hang out with people who seem so far away from God. But what you need to understand is there is no person beyond the reach of God. There is no person that God does not care to reach. There is no one, no matter what they have done, no matter what they have been through, no matter how far away they have gone from God, there is not a single soul that God does not care to reach and he cares to reach them so much that there is rejoicing in heaven when he brings them into his kingdom. And with that in mind, I wanna look at Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 31 and that's a lot of verses and a lot of story to read and, and so in, in just one second, we're gonna actually play it through a video and the video um, tells the story in a visual way and also reads the exact verses in the NIV, and I think it did a great job of, of telling the story. But before uh, we turn to that, I just want to say that this story, and, and as you listen to it, I hope this is in mind, has been called by some of the greatest authors ever, one of the great stories ever told. The list of authors who have stopped to say, this is the greatest story is, is really amazing. Charles Dickens loved it. Ralph Waldo Emerson called it the greatest story that has ever been written. And so as you sit and we watch this video and we hear this story, it's so easy, I think. Because it's in the Bible, because of the way we sometimes read the Bible, like something we have to get through, because we've heard this story before maybe, because maybe you don't think the Bible has anything to say to you. It's so easy just to just, not even consider or think about what's being said. But as you listen to this, know that you are listening to a story, a parable that, that many would call the greatest story ever told. Let me play it. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country. squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am, 
starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. while the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Not much needs to be explained about the story. It's a beautiful story and just a couple of details that might make it sound uh, stick out more. I mean, just just think about the disdain that it takes for a dad to ask for your inheritance before they die. I mean, think about that. Uh, my grandma, whenever I say I like something at her house, she just says, oh, take it now, take it now. And it's always a little bit uncomfortable. I don't, <laughs> right? But if I were to walk in and go, hey, you're, you're getting old. Can I have that? Uh, you know, now, because it'll be mine in a few years anyway. That, that would not be okay. And that's exactly what this, this young man does to his daddy. He goes to a far country. I mean, he just wants to get away from his daddy. Spends his inheritance on sinful activities and he finds himself in a pigsty which to a Jewish person even to this day is repulsive they don't eat pork you may know that I mean this is as low as a person 
can be. And he decides to come home and his dad runs to him and he hugs him and no dad in that society would have ever considered running to their child because to run was to dishonor oneself and a child was to honor their dad, not the other way around. That's how it was meant to be. And he, he hugs the kid. And I find that so interesting because the kid would have been both religiously disgusting because of his wild living and being uh, ritually unclean by being with the pigs. And he would have just been disgusting, physically disgusting, because he would have been with pigs and now come back from the far country. And not only does he do that, but then... He, he puts a ring on his finger, which was to say that you are part of the family, and he kisses him, and he puts his best robe on him, and he puts sandals on his feet, and then he kills the fattened calf, which may be a reference to Jesus, by the way, and then he throws a party for him. And all of it is to say, and you could imagine, right, you can grasp this, all of this is to say, look at the incredible mercy and grace and understand that this is what God is like. I mean, we know, we can, we can sense it in the story that even if the dad would have said, yeah, you can work for me. Wow, what incredible grace that is. To say you took your inheritance and you took your inheritance and you wished me dead and you left me and you did all this stupid stuff. I'll let you have a job on my farm and, and then you can be taken care of and, and eat and be paid like somebody else. But that would have been okay. Or even if he's just like, hey, yes, you can come home and I'll let you live here and, and I won't even make you work, but I'll let you live here. But you're really not gonna be treated with the respect and love that you, that, that you had before. Then that would have been incredible grace or even if he just would have said yeah you can be here and I'll love you and, and hey you're back whatever that would have been incredible grace but he throws the man a party and it's all meant to say God's love is crazy God's forgiveness is incredible it's beyond what we could muster up ourselves it's bigger and better than you could possibly think. It goes beyond what you can imagine. It goes beyond the bounds of logic. It is not something that we probably can ever fully understand, but we have a beautiful picture of it here. The point of this parable, the main point of this parable is to say, you wanna know why I eat with sinners and tax collectors, people who are enemies? Because God loves them so much that if they will just turn to him, if they will just give their lives to him, then he will throw a party in heaven. And this parable, I believe, is meant for us to ask ourselves, who, who are we in the story? Who are we? Perhaps primarily for us who are Christians, are, are we the other son? And he's the forgotten son in the story oftentimes, the other son. But let me read to you Luke 15, 28 through 30 again. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, 
All these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And, and it's so interesting in this story that Jesus never brings it to a conclusion. It's like a story that just doesn't end. And I believe it's primarily because he's talking to these religious leaders and he's leaving them with this open-ended story to say, how are you going to finish it? How are you going to conclude this story? Are you going to respond the way that you know you should in light of this incredible grace? Are you going to act like the Father and lavish love on sinners and tax collectors? Or are you going to stay bitter and frustrated because God will let them into his kingdom when you have worked hard and fought so long as a Christian, as a religious leader, as a follower of God? Are you going to celebrate like heaven when somebody enters into God's kingdom? Or are you going to go, why them? I don't want them to be part of our church. I don't want them to be part of this family. Jesus leaves the story intentionally open-ended. So I think that you, specifically you, who are already part of the family of God, can ask yourselves, what is your attitude towards the lost? What is your attitude towards the prodigal sons and daughters that are wandering around? Are you hoping and pleading and watching for them to enter into the kingdom, for them to return to God? Or do you have disdain for them? Are you going, eh, they're too dirty. They're too unlike me. They're too far away. Or perhaps you can see yourself in this lost son. Perhaps you have wondered, is God, can God forgive me? Can God forgive me? And I know that there are people, I've known people who just think, well, if these Christians who say I can enter into the kingdom, if they just knew that one thing that I never talk about, that I never will share with anybody, if they knew about that thing, if they knew the way that I think, the the thoughts that people can't see, if they knew those thoughts, then they would never think that I could come into the kingdom of God. And I know there are people who think I've been too far away for too long. I have done too many things that I know do not align with the character or the will of God. I have gone too far. I have disrespected God too much. I have sinned against heaven too many times and in too many great ways and I can never return. And Jesus tells this parable for you to say, no, 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 that's not how it is at all. Heaven is waiting to throw a party for you. You just need to return to the Father. You need to give your life to Jesus. The gospel story, in fact, is one not where heaven just waited for you to come, but where God came down to get you. That's the story that we believe as Christians, that God looked from heaven and he said, I want them to return to me so much that he stepped out of heaven and he lived as a man named Jesus, a sinless life, and he died on a cross the most brutal of deaths. And then he rose again three days later and he did it all not so that some could get into heaven, but so that all, even those who think they're the worst sinners ever might enter back into a relationship with God. That's the incredible story that we believe and the Bible tells us that all we have to do, all we have to do 
is act like the lost son in this story and return to God and we do it through repentance. In Acts 2.38, Jesus, uh, excuse me, Peter preaching like the first sermon ever by a Christian after Jesus had died and rose again said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter looks at these people in that same sermon and goes, hey, you wanna know what you've done? You actually killed God when you nailed Jesus to a cross. But you, even you, if you will repent, if you will turn around, if you will come to God, then God will accept you and you will receive forgiveness for your sins. In Acts 3, 19, it says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. God is waiting in heaven for you to accept the gift of salvation so that you may be refreshed and your sins may be wiped away. And in Acts 20, 21, it says, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus. What you must do to return to God is simply place your faith in Jesus. And no matter how bad you have been, there will be a party in heaven. In Romans 10, 9, it says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is for everybody. This is not something that has stipulations on it. If you've grown up in church, if you're of the right nationality, if you're the right race, if you haven't done this, this, or this, if you fit the right mold, then you can turn to God. Then you can declare Jesus as Lord. He just says it. Paul just writes it. Every person, every prodigal may enter into the kingdom of God. All they have to do is turn around and give themselves to Jesus. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Man, I want to say to you, accept Jesus. No matter how bad you think you are, no matter how far away from God you think you are, all you have to do is accept Jesus as your Savior. Give him your life and there will be a party in heaven for you. But neither of these things are the main point of the parable. The main point is not, don't be self-righteous, don't look down upon others because they don't fit the right mold, don't, don't reject people's ability to enter into the kingdom of God because they aren't the people that you like or even because they're your enemies. And the point is not become a Christian, although you ought to. This isn't the main point. Neither of these things are the main point. They are subpoints to the main point. And the main point is that God's grace is incredible. It's the main point of this parable. Jesus is saying, look, you wanna know about my father? You wanna know about the God who is in heaven? You wanna know about me? You wanna know how I think of the world? Let me tell you how. If somebody will just turn their eyes to me and start walking towards home, I will run to them. I will kiss them. I will make them part of my family and I will throw a party because I will celebrate that they have entered into my kingdom. The point of this parable is to remind us of the very famous verse, John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall 
not perish but have eternal life. Or Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Or 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord, Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The point of this parable is to leave every person, whether you are, you are a person who has been a Christian for a long time and sometimes is self-righteous and forgets how incredible God's grace is, how ridiculously amazing God's grace is, if you're a person who's been religious and shown up in church forever, or you're a person who is so far away from God that you feel like you can never come back, the point of this parable is to say, look, look, Look at how incredible God's grace is. We are left with the decision about how we'll respond to that grace. And I hope our decision on how we respond would be awesome. I hope that for those of us who are Christians, we would look at every person in a new life because we read this new light because we read this parable today. And every person that we meet, maybe those who seem so far from God because their language isn't like ours, or their sexuality is not like ours, or their morality is not like ours, or their business ethics are not like ours. We would look at all of them and go, all all they are away from God is just turning around. The only difference between them and me is that I've chosen to go home and they haven't. And I hope that as we look at this parable, those of us who are Christians would never, ever again, as we think about this parable, sing God's grace and how great God's grace is and how wonderful God's grace is without being moved in our souls and feeling some level of passion. And I hope that as we leave today, we would have a a, a newfound desire to talk about God in our conversations because we're thinking about how incredible he is. And I would hope that if you are a sinner who's lost in this world, who understands what it means to be a prodigal, or even if you're just a little bit away from God, a person that, that you haven't done that many bad things, but you still never return to God and you don't live your life with God and you've never understood the grace of God and, and you don't know what it's like to have God forgive you, I would think even then, I would hope even then that as we look at this parable, your response would be to give your life to God because it is so beautiful of a grace that is represented in this passage. I would hope that you would respond to God's grace in a very real and profound way as you read about it in this parable. But what I want to say to you this morning is not primarily respond to God's grace in a proper good way. What I want to say to you is that God's grace, his love, his forgiveness, his mercy, his salvation is the greatest and most luxurious gift that the world has ever been given. As I preach this sermon and as I finish this sermon, I would be amiss to allow you even to take your attention and place it on yourself because that's not the point of the parable. The point of this parable is to say, hey, everybody, 
turn your eyes to heaven because God's grace is ridiculously amazing. And he parties every time somebody enters into his kingdom because he loves humanity so much. The point of this parable is to say that our God and our God's grace are the greatest thing the world has ever known. Will you pray with me? Lord, I just ask that this morning we would be moved by your grace. And even more, God, even more than that. I pray that you would be glorified because we think about your grace. Lord, you deserve all that we are, all that we have, all that we can muster up, all that we have been given. You deserve every ounce of us because because you ran to us. Lord, as it says in your word, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You, you God, came to die for us while, while we were rejecting you outright. We were still rolling around in the mud with pigs, God, disgusting. And you stepped out of heaven into earth and you died for us and now you wait for us to return to you. And it's incredible. It's incredible. Thank you, Jesus. And I pray, Lord, for all of us, that we would turn our attention to that this morning, we would celebrate it, we would remember it, and it would change us, Jesus. It would change us. Let us not look at this parable and be unmoved because it's the most moving story that's ever been told. You did the most moving thing that's ever been done when you poured out your grace upon us. Thank you. In your name, amen.